going to some bare minimums. And, and I said, but what's actually most important for me is that I, I, I'm staying around West Seattle. Like, it's important that I stay around West Seattle because that's where my church is, that's where my community is, and, and I want to be there. And so we're looking, and for those of you that live in West Seattle, we all, we all know uh, that it's expensive. And, and if you've been living here, then congratulations, you, you built some equity, and great, that's awesome. <laughs> and, and I was looking, uh, and I said, man, I said to my realtor, I said, Gene, okay, uh, only if I had just a little bit more, then I would be able to live in this place. I'm not looking for a mansion. I'm not looking for anything really extravagant. But if I was just in that next bracket, not, not the rich and famous, but just that next bracket up, then I would be happy. Then I can finally live in that modest place in West Seattle and be amongst my people. And it would just be an awesome time, right? Yeah, I'll take that as a yes. And Gene looks at me and says, Prentice, you have no idea. I have been, and I'll never forget this. He says, I've been in this industry for decades. And he says, I've worked with the people in the, in the poorest of poors and in the richest of rich, and they all say that very same thing. That it doesn't matter how much money you have or how much money you don't have. Everybody in this market, he says, only if I just had a little bit more. And, and this is the kind of mentality that I believe that we all live with. Whether you're in the market or not, we've all said these same exact words. Only if I had just a little bit more. And what we call that is, we call that in a fancy word, scarcity. We oftentimes, as human beings, we've almost been conditioned to live with this scarcity mindset. It's this mindset uh, is defined by scarcity, defined by not enough. And if you've ever said those words, not enough, we've all experienced what it means and what it feels like and what it looks like to live in this idea of scarcity. Regardless of your income, of your possessions, of your relationship status, whether you even consider yourself a Christian or not, this is a universal condition. And we've all experienced this overwhelming sense of anxiety, of fear, of this desire to push ourselves just to get that little bit more. Just the way we function. You know, maybe for you, it's, again, not enough relationship, maybe lack of relationship or lack of intimacy. Maybe for some of us, it's, it's I don't have enough money. I'm not making enough, or I don't have a, a, a good enough job. I don't have enough house. I don't have enough car. I don't have enough family. I don't know what it is, but many of us sitting in these chairs, in these pews right now, some of us, we may be experiencing at this moment this idea of scarcity, only if I had just a little bit more. And the bottom line is this, is that whether we like it or not, scarcity fuels fear. It's a very simple concept that when we talk about this idea of not enough, I need more, it's this idea of scarcity, and right behind scarcity lies fear. Fear and scarcity are tied together. You can't have one without the other. And the problem with that is when fear enters into our lives, fear kills generosity. 
It's this ecosystem of poison, is that when we feel like we don't have enough, that's scarcity. And when it comes to scarcity, there comes fear. And when there's fear, fear always destroys and kills generosity. And so this talk that we're talking about, yes, it has to do with this not enough mentality, the scarcity mentality, but it actually has more to do with what it does to our concept of generosity. When we talk about generosity, as we talked about earlier, just earlier, is that we are called to be generous people, whether it's with money, whether it's time, whether it's resources, because it's an outflow of what God has done in our lives. But the problem is the very calling that God has called us to do and to be for others gets blocked because of fear and fear that was developed by this not enough. And we've all lived this. We're all living this right now. See, in verse 7 of the text that we read, Philip replied, even if we work for months, Jesus, we wouldn't have enough money to feed them. Even if we work for months. I mean, immediately his disciple, Philip, enters the picture and says, Jesus, you don't understand. You're Jesus. You should know what's happening. There's 5,000 people. As a matter of fact, very specifically, the Bible says 5,000 men. Because oftentimes accounting in the Bible, a very patriarchal society, counted men. And so if you actually counted the men, the women, the children, there were thousands more. And yet they only had just a few loaves of bread and two pieces of fish. And logically, in our mind, uh, Jesus doesn't really, he's not really good at math, right? And so Philip, one of his disciples, says, Jesus, what are you talking about? How in the world are we going to feed these people, thousands of people, with just this? We don't have enough. Even if we worked, we wouldn't have enough. When Jesus said, okay, I see what you're saying, Philip. But I want you, Jesus calls his people to this understanding of generosity that's rooted in faith. See, in the times of not enough, of scarcity, only if I had more, God enters the picture and says, that may be true, But I'm going to offer you something that the world sees as miraculous, that is more fulfilling, that brings you more joy, that brings you more contentment. And he exemplifies it here in John chapter 6 with the feeding of the 5,000. So you have to understand that Philip and the disciples, all 12 of his disciples, they weren't poor. They weren't poor people. At the very least, they were probably middle class. They had jobs. They had boats. They were fishermen. And understanding that makes this text even more complicated for us as disciples. We can actually relate to Philip and the rest of the disciples. They weren't hungry. They probably had money. They probably had resources. They probably had food. They had access. And yet he sees all these hungry people, and he scratches his head and says, Jesus, what are we going to do? We only have those few loaves from, from here and there. Like, what, what are we supposed to do? And, and I think the answer is pretty clear, right? The answer is, well, what do you have? And, and maybe the, the holy and the, and the righteous response would be, well, Jesus, here's everything that I have. Let's, let's make something of it. Let's feed at least the people that we can feed. But no, actually, the response is actually kind of funny. He says, 
not only does he not offer anything, he says, well, there's that little boy there. He's got some food. I mean, instead of these disciples, these followers of God saying, here's what I have, he says, uh, well, how about this little boy here? This little boy has some loaves and some fish. Maybe he can make something out of it. See, here's how our culture works. Our culture has been so conditioned to believe more is better, bigger is better, newer is better. I mean, think about the new, uh, the new iPhone. I talk about I'm a tech nerd. And so when that new iPhone came out, I, I was right there watching the keynote. I mean, I was like in awe of this new iPhone. And it's funny because now all of a sudden my iPhone is obsolete. Right, because this new iPhone 8 or iPhone 10 came out. And it's because our culture has conditioned us that newer, bigger, more is, is so much better. So, so listen, here's how it works. If we live in this idea of scarcity, then we need to gather. Right? If we live in this culture of more, uh, more is better, bigger is better, newer is better, then out of scarcity, we're going to gather, 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 and, and create a huge stockpile. Because our culture says the bigger the stockpile, the bigger the retirement, the bigger the house, the bigger the car, the newer the phone, your life is better. And if that's the case, why in the world would we give away from that stockpile to others? Because if we give away from our stockpile, that means we don't have more, we have less. If we don't have bigger, we have smaller. We, we don't have newer, we actually have to live in more modesty. And so you can see this vicious cycle that when it, comes to, when it comes to scarcity, it kills generosity because we don't want to give up our stockpile. When Philip and his disciples came up and says, well, all these people are hungry, what should we do? Well, I'm not going to give up any of my stuff. Well, there's that little boy. Hey, come over here. Give me what you have. It basically bullies him out of his lunch money, out of his lunch, and, and gives it to Jesus. We live with fear. Fear that drives us to protect our stockpile, our, our time, our money, our resources, our people, our skills. He says, well, not me. I need, to, I need to make it bigger. How about that person? Or how about that person? Not me. There's so much fear of our stockpile dwindling. Now, I just read this statistic the other day that our credit card bill in America is $784 billion. And I'm not talking about home loans. I'm not even talking about student loans. I'm not talking about car. I'm talking about straight-up credit card debt. $784 billion. And what that tells me is that First, we're, as Americans, we are buying more than we can, obviously. But it's so we can make that stockpile even higher and bigger. And maybe it's driven by fear that if we don't have this, then X will happen. Maybe it's shame. Uh, maybe it's not enough to eat. Maybe it's not. I don't know what it is. But we have this fear that drives us to keep spending and spending and spending to build up that stockpile. All the main while in the meantime, we fail to be generous with the things that we have. And what we see here in John chapter 6 
is not only are his disciples or his people driven by fear and scarcity that kills generosity, we see that God's kingdom of being wealthy, of being rich, is so upside down. I love uh, God's kingdom. How throughout the scripture, it's so antithetical of what the world teaches. Jesus says, in order to win, you must lose. In order to be rich, you must be poor. In order to live, you must actually die to yourself. Like, what? It's in verse 8, it says that Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. There's a young boy here with five barley loaves and two fish. But what good is that with a huge crowd? That says in verse 8. See, in John here, he intentionally writes that this boy had five barley loaves and two fish. Five barley loaves. This is a huge indication that this boy was, was really poor. Because barley bread was, a.k.a. Uh, coined as poor man's bread. If the boy came from a rich family, he would have had wheat bread. But instead of wheat bread, the author, John, in, the, in this gospel, says he had five barley loaves. And so what this verse is teaching us is that it's not about the amount that you give. See, this boy, he didn't have much. He only had five barley loaves and two pieces of fish. That was probably a lot for him. See, for the rest of the world in the ancient Near East, five barley loaves, he was still considered poor. While the wealthy had the wheat bread and probably stockpiles of, of bread and food and other things, they looked at this poor boy and said, well, this kid has five barley loaves. And, and if you were living with scarcity of, uh, and driven by fear, you would take those barley loaves and you would put it under your shirt, you would cover it up, and you would say, this is all I have. If I give this away to the other people that are hungry and poor, then what will I eat, right? That's pretty natural. I would do the same thing. A lot of us, we'd probably do the same thing today. And so this kid grabs the barley leaves and he gives it away. And maybe he felt a little bit forced. Like, I'm not going to read too much in the text. Uh, and I'm not going to say what I wanted to say. But yeah, he was probably forced or he, he gave it out of fear or he gave it because Jesus and these grown-ups asked him to give it up. But the point is, out of what he had, he gave away and God used. And God used to feed thousands and thousands of people. There was a miracle in the little thing that this little boy gave. And it wasn't much. And so the couple observations that we have is this. First, when it comes to generosity, it's not about the amount, it's about the sacrifice. Are we being sacrificial for the things that we've been given and been entrusted with? Hey, you know, it's, it's easy for us to give of the things that we have plenty of, right? I wouldn't even call that sacrifice. But what is sacrifice for you? What is it that we're holding on to so tightly that we're holding on to so tightly, we're missing out on what God has for us, that life, and not just life, but life to its abundance. God calls us to live a meaningful life, a purposeful life, a life full of joy, a life full of just, ah, everything is okay, and yet we struggle and we wrestle because we want just a little bit more. 
And so instead of being sacrificial, we just give what we can. We give off the top. We just give a little bit here and there. We give what we have a lot of. And we fail to be sacrificial. And at the heart of sacrifice, of being sacrificial, is faith. At the heart of sacrifice is trust. Are you trusting in the promises of God? When God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. When God says, I will always provide a way for you. When God says, you will never go poor. I will give what you need. He says, not even the birds have to worry because I feed them. How much more do I love you? And yet, we have a hard time trusting that. And for a lot of us, for good reason. I, I, I can't pretend to know. I know everyone's circumstances and situation. Yes, there is uh, this inability to trust. Yes, there are times where trust and, and faith is very difficult. And yet still, God calls us into that life of faith and trust. And out of that faith and trust, we're able to give. Just like that little boy. You know what? Five barley breads, it's not much. It's all that I have, but I give away. I give of myself. You know, and secondly, we see in the story that it's this young boy who becomes the hero. The one that gave everything. It's not the disciples who had everything. It's not the rich. It's not the famous. Remember the upside-down kingdom. The hero of this story, actually, let's not overlook it. Let's not look right past it. It's that little boy. That's what it looks like to live in this upside-down kingdom. To live in generosity is to live sacrificially. It's to give sacrificially and with joy. The more we hold on, I'm telling you, the more we hold on to the things that we have, it's, it's bondage, it's enslavement. And the pathway to freedom is to surrender. See, it's very antithetical. I mean, it, it reminds me, I brought this jar here, and, and I thought about this illustration that I actually saw when I was a kid that I still remember when it comes to generosity. And, and I feel like it, it actually uh, demonstrates our lives. You may not be able to see this, but there's a nickel in here. And for some of us that live in scarcity and that live in fear, we grab this nickel. And we're saying, it's mine. And with this nickel, I'm going to have all the things that I need. I mean, you can, this nickel can represent money. It can represent income. It can represent relationships. It can represent resources, your skills, whatever it is. When you hoard it and you keep it and you protect it without giving it away, you live in this bondage, right? You have a clenched fist. And if I clench my fist, my hand cannot come out of the jar. And this is the life that many of us are living. We're stuck in this jar because we want to hold on to so tightly the things that we have. And so we hold on to this nickel, and it doesn't come out. And God calls us to an antithetical, paradoxical life. Is that if you want to live, if you want to be wealthy, if you want to be rich, you actually have to become poor. You have to let go. And then your hand is free to live and to give to receive the joys that God calls us to that transcends all understanding. I love in Philippians says, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything with gratitude and thanksgiving, 
pray and give thanks. As the peace of God will be with you that transcends all on earth. I don't get it, God. Wait, wait, wait a minute. If I give away, then I will be blessed? If I give away, that means I'll be rich. When I'm poor, I'll be wealthy? But that's the kingdom of God that works very differently than the world. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, it says, For you know the generous act of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for the sake he became poor. So that in his poverty you might become rich. We see this in Philippians chapter 2 as well. Christ gave up his throne in heaven, his richness, and became a human being to die. Not just, uh, not just to die on a death, but death on the cross. A, a, a death that only criminals experience in the ancient Near East in the first century. And then in Philippians after that it says, then his name was raised above all names that every tongue shall confess, every knee shall bow. It's his poorness when he came to earth, that ultimate exile that we talked about last week, he was raised up into glory. And God is asking us, inviting us to participate in the death and the resurrection of Jesus and to live a life that if you want to live a life of abundance, it's through surrender. We have a hard time understanding that. And I love one of C.S. Lewis's quote, how we as humans, we settle for mud pie in the slums. That's us holding on to the nickel. When the calling that God has for us is to be in paradise at the beach, we are so easily amused. We are so easily satisfied, is what C.S. Lewis says. And lastly, what we have to do is we have to shift from the scarcity mentality to a stewardship mentality. I'm telling you, this changes everything. See, a lot of us, and I don't care what generation we are from, I know we blame the millennials for everything. Uh, and some might be true, but we, every generation has something to be blamed for. But we as a society, we have this issue with entitlement, that it's mine, everything is mine. I earned it, it's mine. I, I work for it, it's mine. I live here, it's mine. This is mine. And so when, we come, when it comes to this idea of entitlement, of course we're going to hoard it. It's mine. And this may sound, diff- this may sound weird uh, to those that have never been to church or just checking this church thing out, uh, but the reality and the fact that is, is that nothing is ours. Everything on this earth, everything that you have belongs to God. It's all over the scriptures. Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 10 says, Behold, to the Lord your God God belongs heaven and the highest of heavens. The earth and all that is in it belongs to God. Psalms 89, the heavens are yours. The earth is also yours. The world and all of it contains. You have founded it. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, for the earth is the Lord's and all that it contains. It's a weird concept, but it's this concept that cultivates freedom. I'm telling you, this idea of stewardship 
It changes the way you live. It changes the way you love. It changes the way that you interact with others. It, 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 it changes the way that you do your job. Nothing belongs to us. We have been entrusted with it to take care of it, to cultivate it, and to give it away and to bless others with it. Whatever you have, whether it's your income, whether it's your job, whether it's your skills, God's given it to you, yes, so you can flourish and so you can thrive and so you can provide. Yes, none of that is bad. That's actually great. That is being a good steward of it. But we're missing a huge piece of the stewardship puzzle if we just hoard it to ourselves and don't give it away. The definition, by definition, the idea of stewardship means that you have been entrusted with somebody else's property, so you better take care of it. You know, a while back, I had a friend who, uh, his car broke down, and I was going out of town, uh, and, you know, for a weekend, I was like, hey, if you need to, if you need transportation, I'll let you borrow my car for the weekend. I said, thank you so much. That'd be great. I'll take good care of it. I said, wonderful. I, I trust you. I believe you. You know, and I felt kind of bad. I pulled up, and I was late to the airport. I said, hey, all you got to do is you got to drop me off at the airport, and then the car's yours. Uh, and I was in a hurry. I said, sorry, there's a little, only a little bit of gas. The car's kind of a mess, but you know what? It's only for a weekend. Have at it. I come back on a, it was on Tuesday. I come back, and he picks me up. And I put my luggage in the trunk, and I look in the car, and I'm like, what? Who, whose car is this? It's clean. That's, very, that's a rarity in my vehicle. I, I live out of my car. Not, not really. That, I talked about buying a house. Like, I actually live in a condo right now. But my car is usually a mess. And, and when I got into the car, it was like, it was vacuumed. There wasn't a speck of dust. There wasn't wrappers everywhere. There weren't banana peels, and don't ask, but yes, that's there, even this morning. The gas tank was full. There's something about when we understand that something doesn't belong to us, we take better care of it. I think that's just the human condition. I think we've all experienced it. When we understand that something is not ours, we understand that it's been entrusted to us, and we just take better care of it. I don't know what it is. But when we know it's not ours, we take better care of it. And so when we have a proper understanding of all the things in our lives, and we have this proper understanding that it doesn't belong to us, then I guarantee you, when we understand it belongs to God, that we take better care of it. Again, that goes for everything, even our own bodies. I know this, is, this sounds strange, but even our own body, says Paul, does not belong to us. And so... We must be good stewards even of our own bodies. Everything belongs to God. And this attitude changes everything. And I love and I'm so proud of our church. How we, and I've been a part of a lot of churches, and I don't just say it's because you guys are my people, but this church has been so generous. Even story, I love hearing stories uh, that wasn't even announced. There's a lot of stories that I came across just by talking to somebody else of small groups, uh, of friendships, uh, of people stepping up to provide their time, their skills, their ability, whatever it is to help others. 
I love that we're building this relationship with Highland Park Elementary to be able to provide not just money, not just things, although that's part of it, but also people, adults that truly love children and want to invest in their lives. Uh, I love that we work with World Relief and we help and we advocate for the refugee crisis, especially the resettled refugees here in our own community, in our own neighborhood. I love that we have partnered officially uh, and have been for a few years now with Young Life, Young Life West Seattle. And, And Young Life has dramatically changed my life personally. And I tell the story all the time. If it wasn't for Young Life, I probably wouldn't be up here being your pastor today. And so I've actually invited, uh, asked Allison to come up. Uh, let's give her a round of applause for Allison Bray. All right, you can grab that mic right over there. She is the area director for Young Life uh, West Seattle. And I've had the privilege of meeting with her and getting to know her and her heart uh, for our community and the adolescents. And so um, just briefly, could you just share a little bit about Young Life and what Young Life is up to right now? Um, so, ooh, hot mic, I love that. Um, yeah, I get the privilege and honor of serving as the area director of Young Life in West Seattle. And like Prentice, I wouldn't be on the stage if Young Life hadn't impacted my life. And uh, I was a high school kid and was involved with Young Life. And um, I love that we talked about feeding uh, the 5,000 this morning uh, because uh, one of the reasons that I still do this is one of my very first Young Life girls here in West Seattle was taking her home on a Monday night and um, dropping her off from Young Life Club. And she said to me, "Uh, Allison, I'm just hungry. And I said to her, oh, we're almost home. Like, it had been a long car ride. Lots of people dropped off. And I said, we're almost home. You can get some food in a minute when you get home. And she said to me, there's no food in my house. Like, there's nothing to eat at home. And I was a young college student volunteering, and I, I dropped her off, and I drove away. And it really didn't hit me until I was down the street of, like, she really might not eat until tomorrow morning when she goes to school and there's free breakfast at school. And um, those are the students that still live in this community, um, are the hungry. And um, so I uh, get the privilege of recruiting adults to care about those kids um, and to engage with them and be a part of their life. And so we have ministry um, at four of the public schools here in West Seattle. So that's Madison Middle School, Denny Middle School, West Seattle High School, and Chief South High School. And uh, we have teams of adults that build relationships with those students um, with the privilege and the honor of um, earning the right to tell them about Jesus and um, introduce them to Christ. Yeah. Yeah, you kind of answered it there, but just kind of as a segue, uh, what compels you to continue doing this? I know, you, how long have you been doing this? A long time. Uh, this is uh, starting my ninth year on Young Life staff and been involved for a few years beyond that. So, yeah, so it's been a while. Yeah, so it's been about 10 years plus. And if you've ever worked with teenagers, 10 years, I mean, that you should, there's a special place in heaven for you for that. <laughs> Thank you. And, and, so what, and so what compels you to do that? What compels you to continue to give of your time and who you are to these students? Yeah, I, um, yeah, I think teenagers are a lot of fun, so that helps. Um, but they're crazy. Um, but they, they are um, 
So I just, I get, I get the lens and the front row seat to see what's happening in their life and they're hurting and, and uh, being an adolescent is hard and I think it's just getting harder as our culture continues to move faster and one of my uh, friends um, who's a high school student, he's a junior this year, uh, his name's Nico, he had the privilege of sharing his life story with 400 middle school kids this summer and one of the things that he said in there is that he said when I was in middle school I was so depressed. And that is the reality. We have middle school kids that are depressed. And so I get the privilege of continuing, of getting to meet those kids and inviting them to something else. And uh, Nico's now one of our student leaders, and he um, is so excited about reaching out to younger kids in his high school to introduce them to Jesus because Jesus has impacted his life in such a dramatic way since he was a seventh grader. And so it's so fun to get to see kids' lives transformed, and it's definitely hard, <laughs> and it, um, it takes a lot of time and energy, but um, that's, that's why I've continued to do it. I think of um, Isaiah uh, chapter 61 that talks about the year of Jubilee and um, that the Lord has come for the poor and to restore um, a crown of beauty where there were ashes and gladness where there was mourning. And I have the privilege of getting to do that and be a part of that in the lives of young people in our community. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah so as we wrap this up, is there any way, well, we will be continuing to pray for you, yeah. but also are there actual needs, are there uh, ways that we can come alongside you and support you? And, and I know the people here have been so convicted of God's message this morning <laughs> that they will be taking notes on what you say. Yeah, um, so we have a couple things coming up. Um, we are praying about, and I think the Lord's really leading us to start um, a Young Lives group in West Seattle, which is Young Life to Teen Moms and Their Babies. And uh, we have a couple women who are really interested in helping get that started, and we actually know a couple young women who have babies and who are going to have a baby this year. And so um, we're doing an interest meeting on October 22nd. You can come talk to me if you want to go to that. Um, it's, um, just, it's just the like beginning stages. And that it's a ministry to young moms, but it's for both men and women. Um, to start a Young Lives Club is, takes a lot of resources. Um, so if that's something that you would be interested in, you can come talk to me. We have an event coming up on November 2nd. It's called our Tonight Show. Some people here who've been to that. And it's just a chance to hear a little bit more about what's happening in the area and a chance to give and to respond. Um, we do have to raise our own budget here out of the community. So um, giving of your dollars can be a way that you support us. I wrote something else down that I forgot about. Um, and, oh yeah, we, um, there's just tons of ways to serve in a volunteer capacity from coming one Monday to help serve a meal we have an adult uh, committee that serves kind of as an advisory board that meets once a month. And then um, you could, you too could hang out with teenagers and be a volunteer young life leader. So those are some ways that you guys can all connect and you can contact me or you can contact Prentice um, and get in touch with me that way. So Awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you. We're yeah. so thankful for what you do yeah. for our community. Let's give her a round of applause. As we invite the worship band up in a time of response, that is something I want us to consider, whether it is young life, whether it is giving to the church, or even serving here at this church, waking up that extra half hour to say hello, to greet people with a smile. Maybe it is with your finances to, 
to, to God's church. Maybe it's to a, a nonprofit organization. Maybe it's your time. or your school. I, I don't know what it is. My only encouragement and my challenge to you is to identify where has God given to you. And, and the answer for a lot of us uh, is in a lot of places. And, and if for you, you say, oh, I don't know, come talk to me. We'll talk about it. But I really believe that God has given so much to us that in response, we should be giving back to others. And it says in the scriptures that when we give to others, that is like giving back to God. That is giving to God. So may we pray against all anxiety and fear that compels us to hoard and be greedy and to be selfish. May that be released from our lives so that way, that way we may be free to give out of our own generosity sacrificially because we understand the, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ and what that has done for us. We all have something to give because it's not about the amount. It's not about the check size. It's about the sacrifice that is rooted in trust that God will be faithful in God's promises. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for who you are and what you've done for us. May that change the way we live. May that change the way we give to others. May we understand that when we give, we are blessed in ways that the world can never see or comprehend or provide. We thank you for that upside-down economy. When we tap into that, in your name we pray. Amen.